So, to tell a little story, um, when Siddhartha Gautama, which is the name of the man that came became the Buddha, he was getting close to his awakening. He had been striving really hard on the path. You know, he'd been starving himself and uh, staying out in the elements and kind of injuring his body through all these rigorous ascetic practices. And he realized at some point that despite doing all of that, he hadn't really achieved any wisdom <laughs> that was, you know, valuable to him. It wasn't what he was looking for. So he, but then, you know, the kind of the despair of realizing that, he remembered uh, a specific incident from his childhood that turned out to be useful. And what he remembered was an experience of concentration. So he remembered a time when he was about seven years old, and there's many different versions of this story, but I'll just mention the one that's in the suttas. So he was sitting quietly under a rose apple tree during kind of a plowing ceremony. His father was the local leader, and he was, you know, the sort of spring rites to welcome and wish for a good, good crop. And at that moment, he was attentive in kind of a holistic way, like what we talked about in that first talk. He wasn't sitting in deep meditation as a seven-year-old. He was watching something, but his mind was unified. It was continuously mindful. It was peaceful and happy. And he was in a wholesome state of mind. And he was totally present. He wasn't thinking about yesterday or tomorrow, and he wasn't having judgments about what was going on. And so all the factors were there for him. And he actually uh, entered kind of a he did enter a concentrative mind state, it said he even entered the first jhana uh, while he was sitting there. We'll talk about what that is in a moment. <coughs> and so as an adult, while he was totally frustrated on his path, he remembered this experience and he thought, huh, I wonder if that's the path to awakening instead of sitting here starving myself and killing myself through all these rigorous practices. And he had the intuition, yeah, I think that, I think that's a better approach. And so he um, pursued that. So he says, why don't I pursue that? And so he went and sat down under the, he nourished himself with the meal that was offered by this kind woman, and went and sat under the tree and uh, recalled that state. And he went through uh, the concentration attainments, and that got his mind steady enough that he could finally see clearly all the way to the cause of suffering and remove it from his heart. So, it's you know, it's... Um, and it worked. <laughs> so it's a story, in a sense, of course, but it was, you know, we can learn things from it that apply to our practice. So we, too, may be striving too hard in certain ways or pushing for things to happen in certain ways. Um, and concentration is actually all about relaxing. And that's why I don't like the word concentration very much. Um, it tends to evoke non-relaxation in people's minds. So composure can be better, or even gathering the mind, or something like that. Um, and what we're, you know, it's really mostly about letting go. First we have to let go of the hindrances, and we have to let go of any other unwholesome mind states, we let go of unethical behavior, and then we let go while we're sitting there of anything that's not the object even if it's wholesome, um, if it's not the breath, that's not what we're doing. So, 
um, allowing the mind to really become settled on that one particular object is mostly about relaxing and not going with all those other things. So it's very much about letting go. Why is concentration blissful? Because we have let go of all of the grosser desires and pleasures. And letting go of the five hindrances is enormously pleasurable. Imagine a mind that has no sensual desire at this moment, no ill will, it's not tired, it's not restless, and it has no doubt about what it's doing. How could that not be a pleasant state? <laughs> None of that is present. So it's, um, you know, this is the path to samadhi, is to really um, delve into these amazingly happy and positive and undistracted mind states and um, find what the mind can do when it lets go of all the things that are dissipating it. When you get to concentration, you realize why it's called that. It's because everything else is dissipating energy from the mind. It's like you've got a tank with a bunch of holes in it <laughs> and the water is just, you know, all everywhere you're going. And this is, you know, people even say, oh, I feel like my mind is everywhere, my mind's going everywhere. It is, and it's dissipating a lot of energy doing that. And when we allow it to, which is what it really wants to do, we allow it to just come together into what it's doing right now, it's so happy, and it has a huge amount of energy all of a sudden. That's why you don't need to sleep as much on retreat. Um, suddenly there's all this energy available. So I want to talk a little bit about this kind of mind state, not because I want you to feel terrible that you've never achieved it or that you need to do it and I'm sitting here looking at my watch waiting for it to happen and everybody. It's not like that at all. It's really for inspiration and for understanding and because it's not always talked about. For some reason some, there's some, sometimes some reluctance among teachers to say these things. But I want to, um, you know, give the uh, analogies, the, the kind of image analogies that are given for each of four particular absorption states that are described in the texts that are called the four jhanas. And those are states that happen when the hindrances are completely suppressed. They're completely not suppressed, like you push them down and you're going to have bad psychological consequences <laughs> later. But suppressed, like at that moment, they're just not active in the mind. They're not energized at all. Um, so when that happens, the mind will go through a series of um, deep concentration states. And this has been known for a long time, actually, that the, they're just, they just seem to be ways that the human mind can operate. And I know people who have practiced these now, so it's not like our minds are that different from people 2,600 years ago. The mind can do these things. So there's the, the beautiful um, kind of visceral analogies so for the first jhana, it says, just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water, so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. <laughs> Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion there is nothing of her entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Well, that sounds pretty good. 
So that's, I mean, we don't do bath powder, but you can think of flour if you want. Um, and I put the her in there because I'm being, you know, fair. <laughs> um, and the, um, it's, it's a nice analogy, though. You can actually um, get this analogy in the body because you have these two substances. So this, imagine it doesn't have an object name, so you can do this with a lot of different objects. But imagine you're doing it with the breath, for example. You have the breath, which is an experience in the body. Then you have the mind, which is kind of observing the breath, staying with the breath, mindful of the breath. You have these two different substances, and you need them together so that they become very well unified. So this is actually what you're supposed to do in the first jhana, is you should pervade the entire body with the feeling of the breath. This is my interpretation. Not every teacher will say this. But I find that, for me, is true to the image and works well. Um, and the rapture and pleasure that's born of seclusion means that you're secluded, first of all, from the hindrances. You don't have any hindrances in the mind, but to get that, you're also, to some degree, physically secluded. Um, these states come out, like the Buddha was sitting quietly under a tree by himself, these relatively, I think royal children probably always have attendants or something, but he was left alone there. Um, and for a meditator, there are conditions, you're not going to do a concentration retreat in a noisy city monastery, although I guess there are people who can still their minds well enough there. Anyway, there's a sense of seclusion, and so the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, it's meant to, it says that so that you know it's not sensual, right? We were talking about this earlier with Shane. This is not something that's coming because the body is, you know, you just had a good meal, or because, you know, the sun is just perfect, or whatever, you know, the things that would give, bring us regular pleasure, which are fine, but this is something that's coming from something wholesome, and so it's a non-sensual pleasure, but it's felt in the body. And so we can play with that understanding. Do we think that, you know, do we know what it feels like in the body to have non-sensual pleasure? And then, um, this state, I didn't name it within this quote, but this state includes some degree of mental activity. Uh, you're actually, dire- you are directing the mind toward the breath. You're needing it and working on it. So there is a little bit of, you know, sort of mental application going on even in the first jhana. Not, you're not thinking about things and wondering if it's working and stuff like that, but there is kind of this sense of using the mind in that way. And that is the, turns out, the grossest feeling, if you will. First jhana is very refined, but nonetheless, that's the grossest feeling. And so, If you have in your mind this idea that I alluded to earlier, that concentration is all about ease and relaxation and letting go, if you bring that as your view into practicing concentration, then what you'll do is you'll realize at some point, this is the most agitating part of my experience. What if I were to let that part go? This is the whole, this is the technique for doing concentration. Let go of the most agitating thing every moment. And so when you get to the first jhana, the most agitating thing is the fact that you're applying your mind to the breath and you're working it through the body. And so you let go of that and you enter what's called the second jhana. Just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from the east, west, north, or south, and with the skies not supplying abundant rain showers, so that the cool fount of water welling up from within the lake would, pe- would permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. 
Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of concentration. So you eliminate the application of the mind, and so there's this momentum. You see that the spring is coming from within the lake. Um, It's all internal. And so there's uh, no need for any input from the outside, even the mind applying itself to the, let's say, the breath. Again, there's no object name because you can do it with different objects. Um, But there's this sense, and then you notice that there's now, there isn't the bath powder in the water, there's only water. Water coming within water. Everything has become one substance. The mind and the body are not that different. Um, And the rapture and pleasure, the language has changed. It's no longer born of seclusion, but it's born of concentration. So the second jhana arises out of the first, out of the uh, pleasure that comes from that. At this point, there's, uh, without the mind doing anything, there's an enormous amount of joy. Joy is the most prominent feature of the second jhana. And it's so, it's it's a sort of, you know, welling up kind of joy. (laughs) It's like a little bit, um, it's kind of a lot sometimes. Uh, to have that much joy, and but there's also happiness, and there's also um, a single, single pointedness of mind. You're only on on the object, and then um, you realize though that this joy, this welling up, is um, the most gross thing. It's the most agitating thing, even though it's hardly agitating on a grand scale. So what if I let go of that? I mean, concentration is about being maximally lazy. Like what could what if I could just be do absolutely nothing with my mind? So it's like well, maybe I'll let go of this joy. It's not really needed. I'll just you know settle down to something a little bit more peaceful. So then you get the third jhana image. Just as in a lotus pond, some of the lotuses born and growing in the water stay immersed in the water and flourish without standing up out of the water so that they are permeated and pervaded, suffused and filled with cool water from their roots to their tips, and nothing of those lotuses would be unpervaded with cool water. Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with the pleasure divested of rapture. There is nothing of her entire body unpervaded with pleasure divested of rapture. So that's interesting. Rapture is the same as the joy. So you get rid of the sort of, you know, agitating joy and you get happiness instead. You get this very cool, calm, um, sublime happiness of like a lotus. There's no longer this welling up in the water. The lotus is just standing in very still water, um, very happy. Everybody loves the third jhana um, because it's so happy. And it's. I didn't read it in the description, but it even says those, what other meditators say, that one is happy <laughs> and equanimous. Equanimity comes in at this point also. Um, so it's very interesting, uh, uh, these descriptions. And then what's amazing is you would think, well, that's got to be it. But um, at some point, even the happiness is kind of extra um, because a little bit of equanimity starts to come in in the third jhana, and you start realizing, oh, you know, equanimity is actually calmer than happiness. What if I were to just let go of the happiness, which takes a fair amount of wisdom to decide to do that? And so then you get the fourth jhana. Just as if a person were sitting covered from head to toe with a white cloth, so that there would be no part of his body to which the white cloth did not extend. Even so, the meditator sits permeating the body with a bright, pure bright awareness. We're still in the body. 
There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by pure bright awareness, and as he remains thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, etc., the mind grows unified and centered. So then you're no longer in the water, there's just this white cloth. So the mind in equanimity is really, really balanced, so balanced, so still. Um, it said, I didn't read this part, but it's, you've let go of pleasure and pain. So there's no feeling of either pleasure or pain in the body. I know somebody who practices this much more deeply than I ever have, um, who has a chronic um, back issue where they can't sit for too long. And uh, she says that she has to be very careful in the fourth jhana because if there's no pleasure or pain, she can't feel when she needs to move. Because you, you just, there's no a feeling in the body that's either pleasant or painful. It's a very different experience of the body. And so this, the reason I went through all of this is again not for any sense of achievement or concern that you haven't or whatever, um, but it's to point out that these experiences, which I think you can feel as the descriptions are read, they're meant to be very visceral, is that this is not ordinary experience. This is not the usual way that we experience our mind and our body. So it's pointing to possibilities in our experience that are not the usual. We're so habituated into our familiar ways of being, and we know that we carry them right onto the cushion. We've all had sittings where we sat down and 20 minutes later our mind and body are exactly the same because well, we're just playing out the same habits as still thinking about this and worried about that and it's that same thing in my knee and um, this is saying actually if you keep letting go of the grossest experience you can get into realms that are very different for the mind we are not actually this is not the only way to be this normal consciousness that we carry around in everyday life so it's not that these states are like the be-all, this is not the point of the path. Um, and then, you know, if I could get to the, to the fourth jhana then, and then like maintain it, you can't maintain that in regular life. But it's, it starts to, can you see that if you had experiences like this and that they were wonderful and not scary or anything, that you would, it would start to undermine your assumption that you always have to be like you are right now it just starts to undermine it because your mind knows at some level oh, I wasn't like that you know when I was in the jhana experiences in particular what jhana undermines is sense is regular sense desire because the, the the experience of it is so pleasant in a different way um, in such a different way that you, you're no longer as attracted <laughs> to the, the the latte <laughs> that's my I was using that example the other day it just came back um, so yeah, so it's, and it's not that your life becomes bland and boring, it's, you're not attached, you're not as attached to the sense pleasure, it's still there. Um, I had a wonderful meal last night with a friend and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, the tastes were quite amazing because we went out to, he was buying, so we went to a restaurant I wouldn't have normally gone to. And I have to say it was fantastic, but I wasn't attached to it. You know, it's like I would have been fine at the taco joint also, but I really wanted to spend time with him. Um, but you know, it's it's um, these kinds of experiences start to change our relationship to the, to the rest of life, and that's what this path is. It's a transformation of our relationship to life. So you're not stuck with your mind as it is. And concentration practice is where you really start to change those relationships. Also, uh, concentration is enormously healing. I mean, we we all want healing at some level. Um, 
probably. And it's particularly popular in our modern culture where we have this sort of psychological language in the West. So we talk, even talk explicitly about healing. Uh, you can do lots of different kinds of healing. There's luckily many, many practices and processes for that. Um, but one of them, one of the best, is jhana, actually, <laughs> or even samadhi that's not as deep as jhana, because it unifies the mind and the body, and it's very pleasant. And you just sit there with this feeling of totally wholesome pleasure, totally um, connected between mind and body. It's not, a, I, would, I don't advertise the disembodied kinds of concentration practices. Some teachers do emphasize those more. Um, and you don't even have to know how it's working, but after some period of practicing that, your mind it just functions better. You know, it just functions better. Right afterwards, it'll be amazing when you come out often. Now, sometimes the hindrances come right back, <laughs> but sometimes it, for a while you have a very efficient mind. You know, you can just sit down and do whatever. Now, that's, you have to be careful. That's not the point. It's not to make your work go more smoothly. But, um, yeah. These kinds of practices, and and they just and they do over time, they heal the various things that are still stuck in our mind and still coming back and still traumatic and still upsetting, but it, they just get all smoothed out and you don't even know why or how necessarily. So I just wanted to advertise that if you on the healing path, this is very super powerful healing medicine. So can one get attached to this kind of pleasure? That's what we all worry about with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, the mind can get attached to anything, um, even unworldly pleasure, but that's a terrible reason not to do it. <laughs> um, I mean, this is pure, wholesome state. You can get attached later when you're remembering it, um, but it's it's all serenity and um, stability and healing. It's very good for the mind. Um, so. What is the role of concentration on the path of awakening? Here we are, we've made it to the eighth step, and it's one that's very powerful. Uh, But is that the point? No. As I alluded to earlier, the point is to be able to see clearly. So what what it really does is it stabilizes the mind so that it can observe how things work. That's why when you get to the... After you come out of jhana, you should observe things like the ending of it. You should observe how the world changes. Um, even if you're not all the way in jhana, if you just have your mind have some degree of samadhi, like you get to on retreat, the teachers will tell you start observing impermanence, start noticing that things arise and pass, start noticing that your body is changing, etc., and that your thoughts flicker through and they're just thoughts. Um, why are they saying all that? Don't we know that things change? Because that's where the wisdom comes, and when a mind is very stable, the irony is that a stable mind sees change a lot better than an unstable mind. If your mind is busy like going like this, how can you notice that everything is changing around you? Of course, uh, it's you know like that ship analogy, but a mind that's been made very, very still and subtle and sublime, when you turn that to the fact that things are changing, it can really see that. It really penetrates. Understanding goes very deep. Oh, there's nothing to hold on to. It's not even worth it trying. And the mind is so free and happy not to be grasping and thinking it needs things. It realizes, ah, oh, it's water. It's all just, that's why these water analogies, right? Um, so the mind is really, really poised for wisdom. And so what's the first wisdom step? Wise view. 
we've come to number eight because it feeds back to number one. I'm sorry you did eight months of work to get back to wise <laughs> view, but um, you will have a much wiser view if you stabilize the mind to any degree. You know, Even now your mind is more stable than it was two hours ago when you arrived. Um, even that is good. Uh, just keep doing that <laughs> more and more. And then you'll be able to carry with you more often the view that, oh right, things change, they're not that impermanent, they're not that personal, they're not going to be 100% satisfying because I can't keep them pleasant all the time. Like those are, those are the basic wise views, right? Suffering, how it comes about, how I cling to things, and what I need to do to help my mind be in balance. Those are the Four Noble Truths, kind of in a nutshell, and what it feels like for the mind to be free, of course, we don't want to forget the third. So, more often, you'll be able to have that view, if you've um, practiced the steps of the path, particularly concentration. So, we can start another cycle. <laughs> um, this is a spiral path, and we're at any time we're working all the steps in various ways, but they keep deepening, and concentration is... is it's a circle. Concentration is poised to bring you back to, to wise view. So, yeah, it's exciting. And this is, it's brilliant, actually, this path. Um, I just have more and more admiration for it and for the brilliance of the Buddha in laying it out in terms that you can understand. Even if your mind is totally caught up in the world, as we all are when we start the path, we can get something. I guarantee you out of the last eight months you got something that was really relevant for you. And from that we can, you know, you grab any thread and it'll link to all the others eventually. And so then we can start to see, oh yeah, okay, there's these other components too. And then they they just keep deepening. So the Buddha was absolutely brilliant at pointing us along this path. So... Yeah, so those are my thoughts on kind of where this fits in the bigger picture. And also, I want to really inspire you with the promise of, of finding ways to settle the mind. Even if you have the busiest mind in the universe, you can settle something out of it. Just keep letting go of the, the most agitating thing. And then the most agitating thing at that point. That's the path to, to stabilizing the mind. Um, are there any questions at this point? And then we'll do small groups again. Any questions on the teachings? Yeah. Well, I'm sold. Oh, good. <laughs> that, that sounds really nice. Um, I'm I feel like I'm trying to I sort of understand the idea of, of letting go, like what that sort of feels like. Yeah. Um, the kneading parts, the kneading my breath into all of my body, okay, yeah. I'm having a harder time with. Okay. Um, like just inviting it into my Inviting body. is a great word. Inviting ease is one of the words I use in my own internal language. Um, and another thing is that I didn't talk too, too much detail about it, but you're a little bit tapping into what's more the subtle body you know, not only the physical body, but the kind of more energetic body that we have beneath the physical body that's of a similar shape, but it's more like that buzzing feeling of energy of being alive. And I, f- I find, at least, um, 
that, and there are many people who have this type of body, is that there are sort of knots in that, K-N-O-T-S. It's a technical term for, you know, the energy just doesn't flow that smoothly there. I can feel that at some level. And so, for me, even if I've, you know, well, certainly if I've had kind of a, you know, complicated day and I got wrapped up in things and I've created some knots in my system, but even more deeply we have stuff that's habitual in there that's, you know, that is our, our long-term attachments or traumas or things from the past that have somehow just never been seen clearly enough to be let go of. And so I've had to do some work through this practice of um, finding out what the, the, like opening to those. I don't want to exactly say finding out what they are because I don't always get to find out. But so for me at least, when I try to imagine pervading the entire body with the breath, especially at that energetic level, I find places where things are stuck. And it, it can be, it can feel like a solid place, it can feel like a pain, but it may not actually be a, you know, physical damage to the tissue at that point. Um, and so for me, that that's a, a lot of what that imagery evokes. Other people, I think, don't always have that way of experiencing it, but I wouldn't be able to speak to that. Does that resonate for you at all? Do you have tensions in your body like that? It can be subtle if you... Yeah, I don't know how much concentration you've practiced. I mean, I think I have tensions in my body. Yeah. But I, I guess, I'm not used to thinking of them in that way. Yeah. On my back. <laughs> okay, yeah. So try to breathe through the place in your back that's mm-hmm. tense. Mm-hmm. Can you direct the breath from one side of it to the other side? And then if you start kind of putting attention there, you may find that there's a solid place or that you, that you can pervade it. I don't know. Um, another thing, I guess I didn't touch on this, is that these um, images, I, gave, I called them images, but they're perceptions, right? They would be a perception that your experience is like that. And so we, what we run into in the body is mistaken perceptions. <laughs> so um, the knots in the body are, not, are, are actually views that we have that are not correct about things. <laughs> and believing that things are a certain way, like if, yeah, it's, it's very strange, and I, I guess I feel confident enough that you guys have all now practiced for at least eight months. Um, that we can say that, yeah, the, the, the mind and the body have a very interesting and deep interaction. And if I have certain beliefs, like the belief that, you know, other people are seeing me in a certain way, and if, I, and if I'm really holding on in a certain way, that may show up as some tension in my thigh or something. And by working through that, like feeling as if I, whether or not I can breathe the energy all throughout, down through my legs, I may run into that way of perceiving as a hindrance to my meditation. And so sometimes the thoughts we get during concentration practice um, are actually kind of the views coming out. That's <laughs> why so it's very important not to not to follow them and take them seriously and say, oh, I wonder if it really is true that people don't see me that way. Well, there was that time that, you know, you go off on the thought trail. Um, instead, just let that thought come through as a bubble and keep working on the leg. So it's also a way of keeping ourselves away from the mental stuff that's coming. But somebody once asked Joseph Goldstein, you know, why do I have so many pains in my body while I'm meditating? Um, And he said, well, certain ways of seeing things create pain. 
which I thought was a very interesting answer, and I found that he was accurate about that. So since we don't have a 100% right view, if we're not awakened, we do have some of these things which are knotted up in our subtle body. But I don't, you know, <coughs> people have different techniques for working through them. But yeah, we're going to have to untangle the tangle, as it's called. I don't know if that helps at all, but there are some people for whom these body images are very meaningful, and um, other people for whom uh, concentration comes in different ways, or it's really more of a mental experience, more in the mind and not so much in the body. So I don't, I don't want to dictate how it should be. I just offer these, and I can, I can sell it well because I can speak very authentically that this, these have been really meaningful images for me and continue to be. I find the mind and the body so integrated through this practice. Yeah. Good question. I have a question that's a little off. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that at seven years of age that um, the Buddha sat under a rose apple tree and then he was thinking about how um, to go to the first genre and that he wasn't thinking about that. He, he was remembering. He was remembering, yes. He was remembering that from his ascetic practices. He remembered back to a peaceful time sitting under a rose apple tree. And then did he go back to that ro- same apple tree or was it no. a different tree? No, different tree. I was curious as to what type of tree it was. I know that really sounds crazy. But I, I don't know I, what I, a rose apple is exactly. Some kind of fruit tree, okay. of course. Um, well, he sat under a Bodhi tree to awaken, and Bodhi, Bodhi trees are a kind of fig tree. It's a, a fig family tree, so it's a different... There probably is more significance to that, maybe, in Indian understanding, I'm not sure. Yeah. Thank you. It is significant, I think, that the Buddha was often under trees. He died under a tree also, and I think he was born under a tree. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of tree significance. Yeah. I'm curious, um, kind of what what she was talking about, but but like, so just, so in terms of like pain, like I have some chronic pain issues based on injury, um, and I'm, and I can, I can really, um, I can understand the idea of letting go of that in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're not bothered by it. But that seems like, yeah, but that seems like that's not the unification that you're talking about, because it's being able to let go of it and then not, I don't, I'm just a little confused about how that would come together when you're trying to unify your mind and your body, um, well, but the pain is still real and there. Sure, um, but you don't pay attention to the pain every moment of every no. day, do you? No, you don't, because the mind has other things it pays attention to. So it's possible even within the body to not pay attention to that pain, but still have a bodily experience of some kind. You've probably done it, like sometime when you were eating, maybe. You were tasting the food, but you weren't feeling the pain. So in the same way, we could experience the uh, just other aspects of our physical nature, even a, a unified energy body that doesn't include uh, that particular pain. Mm-hmm. It's just not on that layer. Or you, you could even become concentrated on the pain. That can actually be a very nice object of concentration. It's very strange to have feelings of amazing joy around pain, but you can. Um, so, yeah, it's really a matter of where attention is directed and what's being let in. 
the total amount of sense data coming in, I've forgotten the number, but it's huge, actually. I mean, think about everything you could potentially see, hear, feel, smell at this moment. Um, your sense doors are open, but what fraction of that are you getting? It's like less than 1%, something like that. Is c- it can be touched by awareness. I don't want to be quoted on those numbers exactly, but it's a very small amount that we're actually taking in. Um, and it becomes an interesting part of practice when we start asking, who is deciding that filter? Like, who's deciding what fraction of that stuff I get every moment? Why didn't I get the yellow wall until I looked at it? Something made that decision in my mind not to take in the yellowness of the wall. That's a very interesting question. <laughs> That's a very interesting question. and it. I, I don't have a better answer for you, except that if you didn't have that component that's related to the chronic physical pain that has an actual physical basis, you would just have some other fraction of your experience. Mm-hmm. Andreas, did you have? Yeah, I must, you know, let's see. I feel like I have had some little bit of a taste in the case of the way the um, there's still an attachment to that um, experience, and I've been wondering, like, I guess I've been wondering, do you see a danger there in that you create like, um, what creates like, um, almost like a second reality or something, of being on the cushion versus being, being in the world? Something. I'm thinking mm. of a meditation. Like if you treat it as an escape and you're yes, you go to that special world, spiritual, spiritual escape. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I won't say that there aren't cases where people have changed their lives through wanting to pursue more and more meditative states. That, that can happen. Um, but if you're doing it wisely, I don't think so. Um, if you continue, if you use that state for the development of wisdom, you know, for then turning back and seeing things changing, you will know that it's impermanent. Concentration is impermanent. That's why it's not the goal, <laughs> um, because you can only get to it under these special states. Of, and you know, on retreat, how much effort it takes to sit quietly and got to get into that environment and you know put your mind in that space. It's totally created. <laughs> and um, yeah, so. You know, I won't say, I can't say it never happens and nobody ever got obsessed and, you know, whatever. I suppose that could happen, but for the most part, this is a totally wholesome mind state. It's like, it would be like worrying that if you got too into generosity, you would give away all your stuff. Um, Probably not, because generosity, if it's done, if it's correct generosity, Mm -hmm. is wholesome. And so it doesn't feed parts of the mind that are messed up. yeah, I mean, I'll be careful with that because the path does create imbalances along the way. We're always, who knows, but... Um, I'm thinking of a yeah. case where a meditation teacher was accused of uh, sexual misconduct. He had been, you know, sitting for 30 years, and I heard him sign, you know, a video that, uh, you know, I deny that this happened, but even if it would have happened, it happened in my, it didn't happen here, it happened in my private life. And I was like, oh my God, like, 
Do you make a separation between sitting on the cushion and what your mind state is here versus, you know, what the mind state is in, in so I was thinking there must be some kind of a spiritual bypass or something. Oh, it's, yeah, that, I mean, that's, there's no excuse for that. That's yeah. just yeah. unethical um, yeah. conduct to, yeah. to do that and then to deny it is, is then lying in some sense yeah. or not taking responsibility. So, um, I think what you're experiencing is uh, doubt. (laughs) 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 Yeah, Um, but, you know, that said, okay, um, you know, we can, the mind can make anything into a problem, (laughs) you know. But on the other hand, if you have, if a person, I don't mean you personally, has the type of mind that can get obsessed with things and can create splits like that. If you weren't doing it with jhana, you'd be doing it with drinking or, you know, videos. It's something else, right? Whereas the great thing about jhana is it slowly undermines sensual desire, it slowly undermines um, wrong perception, slowly undermines self, even though it can create selves in certain ways. Um, There are certain selves that you can't keep if you have that. So... Um, you know, if you're going to get attached to something, it's not a bad choice, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, um, you know, that said, sure, the mind can attach to anything. And in fact, the, you know, the, the higher fetters, as they're called, you know, you have the ten fetters that fetter the mind, the, the top five, which are the ones you don't let go of until really close to awakening, um, one of them is attachment to the form realm or the, the realm of the sense sphere jhanas and one is attachment to the formless jhanas. So yes, the mind does create those fetters if you've done that practice. But I'm going to worry about those fetters when I get there. <laughs> the, uh, the other fetters like desire and ill will are looming. Okay, but it's a good question. I mean it's worth being wise. I think it's skillful to work with a teacher if you want to do jhana. I don't think people, I don't recommend that people try to do it by reading books and doing it on their own. There's too many pitfalls and too many ways that we can fool ourselves into thinking we have it when we don't, thinking it's skillful when it's not, etc. Or the mind states that can come up through it, there's sometimes fear or other things before the hindrances are let go of. So I recommend getting a teacher to guide you through jhana. All right, that said, how many people do we have now? We still have 12, okay. Um, That's nice. Um, I think one left and one came, so (laughs) that's good. Why don't we do groups of three again? And then um, I'll read the question. All right. So winding up that one. I forgot actually to record the question, so I apologize to the people who are listening to this recording <laughs> later that <laughs> you didn't know what the first question was. Um, but that's okay. It'll probably come out as we talk about it later. So the second question then is to expand outward to consider the whole of the Eightfold Path. So we just talked about concentration and you know what that experience was like. But consider the kind of the whole of the Eightfold Path that we've done this year, so that's wise view, wise intention, wise speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. 
if you could just name for your group um, one or two nuggets of value that stand out to you among those, the things that you realize that you have valued about the path in which you've seen in your practice. You could say things that you've learned also, but why did your mind catch on that and think that it was important to learn? If you want to say more what you've learned, that's okay. But just something, this is a kind of a gather-up question, so, you know, this is a chance to share, to reflect back. You'll do this again at the day-long if you go, by the way. There will be some, I think, some chance to reflect. But this is maybe your early shot at it, to realize that you might have to think about this a bit. (laughs) But what stands out when you look back over all those steps? Okay, so... um, so do you have any things to share in the larger group? How was it to talk about the experience of a calm and collected mind or the um, <coughs> some nugget of value from the whole year? Yeah, Kristen. Um, I just, I was thinking about how like all even though it's been eight months and like all the work we've done and all the talks and all that I, I still feel like I've just got this little snapshot of what it is and yeah so I was telling my group members that it's really humbling because I, I feel like so much of a beginner yeah yeah it's uh there's a lot to this, actually. And it, you can read the list in the book and just say, oh, that's nice. Of course it covers you know, all the things that spiritual paths usually cover. And then actually applying it to our life, we realize, oh, it's about everything. So that's a really good observation. And we are always beginners, in a sense. Um, and yet something changes. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I was really struck by the, our description. So usually, you know, you ask these questions and everybody's response, like you can relate, like either you've been through something similar or you can be, you know, you're empathetic, like you can get it. But I was really struck by that our descriptions were, like it was kind of almost hard to add on. Any of us would have described it, if we had enough time, I think we really would have described that state very similarly. And that was unusual, at least in my experience, in these kind of triad things. And to me, it points to, so that was interesting in general. It's a great observation. But also just that, like, um, it made me think of, well, your your happiness workshop, which Mm -hmm. is similar, right? It's like, so that if you, I mean, to me, it says, like, okay, if you take away all the stuff that gets in the way of being in that state, it's like, it's there. Like, Like, that really is what's there underneath all this other conditioning crap. That's a great way to summarize it. And these <laughs> these descriptions, I mean, like, why are they so specific? Like this thing about the lotus and the pond and all. Like, why is that even still relevant? I know people who say, these are spot on, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, that's what the mind can do when it's in the layer that, that's about our stuff and our life and ourself. It's not like that's irrelevant. Obviously, this is our life. Um, but that is like, do you get the analogy now of the surface waves on the ocean and then the, the depths? And so spiritual teachings hopefully are coming from and speaking to those depths that are um, more common to what the human heart is and what it can be. And that a lot of 
spiritual learning is clarification so that we have access to those depths in ourselves and we're not only living on that surface. If that's all we know, that's what makes life so hard. But if we have this sort of access to the part where everybody's going to say the same thing about it, that's, that, gets, mm-hmm. that gets different. Yeah. I saw another hand over here somewhere, I thought. Maybe not. So this is our last Sunday session, but of course it's not over. We still have the day long on the 29th. But I just want to offer my appreciation for those of you who have stuck through this long, and it's been really fun to do all these with you and hear your insights and wisdom. And it's not a small thing to come to all of these and dedicate yourself to learning about each of these, even if some of the months were, you know, more dedicated than others, that's fine, that's how it is. And it's, um, yeah, it's been a real joy. And I will I will be at the day long also, so <coughs> I will see you there. So thank you everyone. And have a wonderful month learning about concentration. You'll see your mentor again this month also. All right, great.